there. Thank you. My secretary, Sherry, there. Um, here is the backstory for where we've been. We are within a week now of the cross. And you notice we're in chapter 12, about halfway through John. So it's surprising that with all these chapters yet to go, and we're six, seven days from the crucifixion. Pretty amazing. John concentrates on that last week um, for a number of reasons. But in chapter 11, you remember Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, possibly his greatest uh, miracle. He purposely did it in Bethany, just little less than two miles from Jerusalem, so that the, this would be a, a sign for all of Israel. Um, amazing show of his power over death, his absolute love for Lazarus, his compassion. He, he weeps um, several times in that chapter. And instead of causing the resurrection and giving life, he does those things, but he is the resurrection. He is the life he said in that chapter and we saw again some people believe some people hate him even more in that chapter the religious leaders are out to kill him and uh so to speak so um now we're going to see in chapter 12 a number of little stories and look at how how they in a way tie together the first one is a dinner party with some unbelievably extravagant worship is going to uh, occur. And we'll see a reaction to that worship that's kind of shocking. Anyway, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. Perfect, wasn't it? Okay. And uh, <laughs> I'm seeing a funny screen. I better not look at the screen too much. And those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave so I know you're awake as well. Beautiful. All right. Uh, chapter 12, verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. I'm going to read this whole little story, then we'll talk about it. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let's take that part of the story first. You're going to get reactions um, after that that aren't good. Um, but let's pick it up uh, at that point. So this is six days before the Passover. The Passover starts um, uh, less than a week away. That's when Jesus will die while the priests are sacrificing lambs. He, the Lamb of God, will die on the cross at the exact time God intended for it to happen. So he comes back to Bethany. He's gone away after raising Lazarus from Bethany because it just made the Jewish leaders hate him more and want to kill him. So but despite the danger, he comes back to Bethany, again, just a couple miles from Jerusalem, anticipating the Passover, and that's where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's always what gets mentioned when you talk about Lazarus. Oh, the guy Jesus raised from the dead. You're going to see in this story that Lazarus has become a bit of a celebrity, um, and I'll explain why I, I think he didn't like it. But anyway, um, that's what's going on. This is a dinner given in Jesus's honor, verse two. Now, 
there are two anointings like this, where a woman pours perfume on Jesus's feet. And um, they are in, there's one in Matthew, there's one in Mark, there's one in Luke. The one in Matthew and the one in Mark is the same story. Right before the crucifixion, about a week before, but the one in Luke is totally different um, for a number of reasons. This one we learned from Matthew and Mark occurs at the home of a guy named Simon the leper, which if you're smart, you realize, well, he better be the ex-leper, right? Almost certainly he's a guy that was cured of leprosy by Jesus. Wouldn't you have a party for Jesus if he cured you from leprosy? So he's Simon the ex-leper. This is at the home of Simon the, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is Simon the leper's house. The other story in Luke is Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon, very common name. Um, in that story, that's about two years before this, before the cross. That's Luke 7. Um, let's see. The reason everybody's sure there's two anointings is John the Baptist is still alive at the Luke one. He's long been dead in this one. Um, the house is different. The woman is Mary here. She's named. Jesus knows her. She's a holy lady, right? The woman in the other story of Simon the Pharisee is um, an, a sinful woman. It's thought. It doesn't come right out and say it. It's thought that she's a prostitute. Okay, and in that story, when the woman anoints Jesus's feet, um, Simon the Pharisee doesn't complain about the cost of the perfume. He's complaining because if you were really the son of God, if you're the Messiah, you'd know, come on, this woman is of ill repute. You know, she's an evil woman. Um, so two different stories. This is um, the one at Simon the ex-leper's house honoring Jesus who raised Lazarus. Um, let's see, we already talked about that, um, but they're similar. It's possible Mary does this because she's heard about the other story and wants to do something uh, unbelievably extravagant worship-wise for Jesus. If your brother had died and Jesus had raised him from the dead, wouldn't you want to be at that party and do something extravagant for him? We're going to see that it's unbelievably extravagant, this story. Um, uh, Bob Deffenbaugh, I think it was, names his sermon on this section, The Sweet Smell of Love and the Stench of Greed. Uh, I like that. So um, it's six days before the um, Passover. Some scholars have noticed that it's six days. You say, so what? Six days of creation. It's six days until there's a beginning of a new creation, right? Jesus is going to pay for the sins of the world. Um, might be a stretch, but I thought I'd throw it in uh, at no extra charge. Um, we already talked about that. So the hosts are Simon, the former leper whose house it is, but also Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are sort of acting as co-hosts for this party. I'll show you in a second. One of the reasons is the normal thing that would be done at a party, if you're the host, is um, that you would give the person a welcome kiss, okay? 
Um, if you've been to Europe, you see people kiss on each cheek. In the Middle East, they do it some places. That would be the norm, okay? So um, also with the dirty roads and no paving or very little, um, you would at least offer people, here's some water to wash your feet. That would be the minimum. Here's a bowl over there, but you could have someone, a servant, wash each guest's feet. Um, so Mary's going to do that, sort of acting as a guest, uh, as a host, sorry. The other thing you would do is anoint the head with oil of anyone you wanted to honor as a special guest. Remember in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. That verse is astounding. It's saying God is the host. He's anointing me, your head, my head with oil, like we're some sort of honored guest to him. Should be the other way around, right? Pretty amazing. So um, that's the background there. I wanted to give you that. So a dinner is given in Jesus's honor, right in the middle of verse two, as you would expect, what's Martha doing? Busy Martha, always serving. By the way, people put her down. Well, Mary did the right thing, listening to Jesus. We need people that serve that way, don't we? Not everybody's alike. M Mary is always at the feet of Christ. She appears three times in the gospels. The first one, she's at his feet, just listening to him teach. Do you remember? And Martha's busy with two microwaves and a dishwasher and setting the table. And she comes and complains. Do you remember? And Jesus says, she's chosen the right thing. She's learning from me. Second time she's at Jesus's feet is when he raises Lazarus. Do you remember? She shows up and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Now she's going to be at his feet again. Some say the progression is beautiful. At his feet first, doing what? Hearing the gospel, taking it in, learning like a sponge, learning, learning, learning. Reading the word would be equivalent now. Listening to sermons, whatever it may be, or guys on Tuesday Bible studies, for example. In any case, learning, taking in the word. The next time she is at his feet, and basically she's praying to him, right? It's the humble position to be at somebody's feet. The word for worship in Greek is proskuneo. It means to bow down to someone. Worship is from the English word worth-ship, meaning showing someone has such great worth. That's an important word in the story I wanted to tell you. Their worth is so great that you're willing to bow yourself down and worship them. Um, the third time is here where Mary is going to be a model example of worship. But before we move on, let me show you that all three in that family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are sort of all doing things Christians ought to do. Martha is serving. Nothing wrong with that. Mary is worshiping. Lazarus I'll show you later in the text, is testifying. Because everybody knows, you're the dude he raised from the dead. Wow. And he's able to testify, right? Okay. Uh, Mary, Martha served, sorry, I'm still in verse two, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. You say, what's that? They have little recliners? No. Forget your dinner table with chairs around it not happening in that part of the world. 
A dinner table was a low table, like a large coffee table, okay? Much lower. Often a big and long, which is how it's depicted in the Last Supper, right? You've seen that, a long table. Sometimes they were in the shape of a U so that everybody could look across at each other instead of everybody being that way. By the way, if you've seen the paintings of the Last Supper or carvings or whatever, if you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's all be on the same side of the table facing outward. Why would they do that? There would be half the people would be across from the others, right? In any case, they're at this low coffee table. What you would do because feet were dirty was you would lean on one elbow, left usually, if most people are right-handed, so that you could eat the food there at the coffee table lower. Your feet would be away from the table, more accessible if you're going to anoint feet. In Matthew and Mark, when this story is told, we find out that Mary didn't just anoint his feet, but his head also. Maybe his arms and his legs and his hands and everything. Anointing was done um, as a precursor to somebody, a consecration symbol for somebody about to do a great divine work. They would anoint prophets and priests and what have you. He's about to do a great divine work. He's going to die for the sins of the world. So, Lazarus is there at the table with him. We don't know who else is there. Probably the, the disciples, the, the apostles are there. Could be a pretty big group. Verse three, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, this is pure, humble, extravagant worship. We're about to learn that uh, from Judas that this perfume, uh, verse five, it was worth a year's wages, which was a denarius, some translations have. A denarius was what a laborer was paid for a day's wage. I want you to understand this is by no means exact. But today, if we say a laborer makes $20 an hour, I know it would be less in some states, more if you go to New York City, $20 an hour, 40 hours a week, and they would work more than that, by the way, but 40 hours a week would be $800 times 50 weeks. You're talking $40,000 is what this perfume is worth. Um, it is about a pint, but their measurements are different than ours. It's about 11 ounces is what it comes out to. So it's a, a, an alabaster bottle we learned from Matthew or Mark, I can't remember which, which she breaks the neck off of. It's the kind of perfume that is so concentrated. If you've ever seen men, we don't know about these things, but ladies, my wife has bottles of perfume that are this small right? Because you don't put on a half a gallon, it's two drops kind of thing or whatever. I don't know much about perfume, can you tell? Um, spike nard is from a root in India. That's a long way from Israel. So it would have to be picked there and um, crushed and refined the oil, made it made clear, put into little bottles, and then brought usually on camels all the way to Israel. Translation, expensive, really expensive. Are Mary and Martha and Lazarus loaded with money? We don't know. Whether they are or whether they're not, this is what, what would often be an heirloom, something that maybe their parents passed down to them. It would be something that she had saved up for. We don't know. But 
this sort of a bottle of perfume that small worth that much money was easily transportable. There's no banks in these days. So it would be, it would be some security for them. She's given it up, not putting two drops on. She's putting so much on, she needs to wipe it off with her hair. So she takes what is hers, bows down in a very humble position and pours it on his feet, um, which would be considered something that only a slave would touch another person's feet. She pours it on his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Do you see that? Now in the Western culture, we read that and say, oh, okay. In that culture, it's a total no-no for a woman to undo her long hair and let it fall down, let alone wipe somebody's feet with it. To, for a woman to show her hair was in some cases kind of the way of saying that she's a loose woman, okay? Is she? No. Is that why she's doing it? Not at all. She's doing it because she's worshiping Jesus. I want you to notice that worship is expensive. You say, oh, you mean the, the amount of money for the perfume? Yes, and other things. But let's talk about that money first of all, okay? What we're going to hear in a second from Judas is that this is a waste. This is a waste of money. Judas is going to appraise the perfume and how much it's worth, because Judas is in it for the money, we're going to find out. And then he's going to appraise Jesus and say, is this a good use of this, that much money? By the way, if the person's making $25 an hour, we're talking $50,000. If they work six days a week, maybe it's $55,000. Even if you're wealthy, that's a good chunk of change. Amen. So she pours it on Jesus's feet and wipes his feet with her hair. She's making part of her body the towel that a slave would use. It's an unbelievably humble, beautiful act of love. And she's not being stingy with a drop here and a drop there, you can tell, to the point that the, the fragrance is going to fill the whole house probably the next morning and a week later, people wake up in that house and go, wow, I can still smell that perfume. It's awesome. So she gives something that, uh, what's that famous quote from Jim Elliott? He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You ever heard that? The only thing I would say about that is it a little bit is incorrect. Giving what you can't lose, uh, sorry, what you can't keep, meaning your money, your time, you can't keep any of those things. If you give them to God's service, you're doing an awesome thing. But to get, it almost sounds like you're giving that so that you can get salvation, what you can't lose. Maybe it means rewards. I would say it's better to say that it's given in gratitude for what you've already been given, but I'm just splitting hairs here. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Who gets blessed? Jesus. Who else? Everybody in the house, right? Just all of a sudden smells so good. There's no such thing as deodorant. There's no showers. It probably didn't smell that good before she did this. Let's be honest. But there she is 
humbly, beautifully loving on her savior. She owes him everything and she knows it, not only because of her brother's resurrection, but for a hundred other reasons. She has sat at his feet and the result is she prayed to him in the previous chapter at his feet humbly. Now she worships. The more you study God's word, a natural outpouring is your worship grows, right? Because his worthship, how much he's worth to you because of what you've read and learned has grown to the point where you want to do things for him. Remember, each of us have the three T's, time, talent, treasure. She's giving treasure right now, right? So back to worship is expensive. Remember I said that earlier? Don't you just mean the value of the perfume that she is pouring on him? No. What else? What are other people thinking about her? You can't help but look down on someone that is on the floor wiping feet with hair, right? She's about to be ridiculed. And in the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, we find out it wasn't just Judas. He started it, but the others chimed in. Yeah, this does seem like a waste. 50 grand. Seems like a waste of money. Not understanding the value of the person whose feet are getting anointed. Um, so, uh, yeah, we already, the, the synoptics say she anointed, as I said, his head, you know, arms, legs, maybe even. Um, yeah, we talked about that. She doesn't care if anybody thinks this is extravagant. She doesn't care if people think it's foolish. So the question is, do you? Well, I'm not giving 50 grand. And darn, God doesn't need your money, but you know what? Give him what you want because it's, there's always a blessing. But if you give to your church, somebody may think that's a waste. Or you give a lot of time at the church or in a ministry or in prayer and you watch unsaved people will say, there's better ways you could save your, use your time and your talent and your treasure, your money. Um, she doesn't care if she's going to get uh, uh, ridiculed. 1 Corinthians 11.15 speaks about a woman's long hair as, listen, as being her glory. Okay? So in a sense, she's taking her glory, putting it down near the floor, and wiping his feet with her hair. It's a beautiful uh, picture of worship. Um, this might be the most precious thing she owns. Verse four. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, that's always next to his name, isn't it? Anybody have anyone in their family or friends named Judas? You just don't see that. What'd you name your son? Judas really, you know, just not a name you hear very much. Judas, the betrayer, one of his disciples, notice, um, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, okay? Now, at first glance, you say, well, that seems pretty noble, He's not going to buy a Mercedes with it. He wants to give the money to the 
poor. Does he? Well, that's what he said. Judas is the ultimate counterfeit. He fooled everybody except God and Christ. Jesus knew he was stealing. The disciples probably didn't know. It's thought, by the way, I couldn't prove this, but it is thought that Judas was the most educated of all the apostles. Remember, the others are fishermen in terms of like, did you go to college? I'm a fisherman, right? I'm a carpenter. Matthew might have been educated, tax collector, we don't know. So he's going to object. By the way, if you're at the dinner table and while the dinner, it's not after, it's while the dinner's going on, Mary gets up, expensive alabaster bottle, breaks the neck, and just silently, you notice Mary doesn't speak, right? Doing this for her own credit, not at all. But I'm sure the dinner conversation stopped and everybody went, wow, right? It's a little awkward, very quiet. They're just watching. Jesus is watching. She's doing it. And so there's two awkward pauses here. There's that one. And now there's this one where Judas says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. What's he doing there? As I said, he's appraised how much it's worth, and he would know, and how much Jesus is worth and said, this, this is a waste. Okay, Judas is in it for the money. We're going to find out he steals from the money bag. What just happened? I don't mean this. I mean, a little while ago. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If Judas is there and watching, he's thinking, wow, this family owes, they're going to pay big time for this. And I can take my little 20% cut and no one will know. Maybe when he sees the perfume come out, he thinks, ah, there it is. And it's poured out on the floor and on his feet and on his head. And he's a little disappointed, right? He doesn't want it for the poor. We know why. He wants it for himself. So he's ridicule, ridiculing whom in verse five class? He, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Who is he ridiculing? Well, obviously, Mary, right? What a dumb thing to do. Might have even made her cry. Certainly embarrassed her. Does she care? I don't think so. Who else is he ridiculing? Jesus. You should have put a stop to this. You know that's a waste of money, is it? Absolutely not. How could you give God more than is due him when you owe him everything? How could you give God more of your time or your talent or your treasure to the point that it would be, oh, that's over the top. That's really what he's saying here. You're, you've really made a huge mistake. And you too, Jesus, you should have stopped this waste. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Verse six, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, that's probably something Jesus told or revealed to the apostles later, right? And 
I think he fooled all of them. If you want to know how good of a counterfeit Judas was, remember that in the Last Supper, that's a few chapters from here, Jesus is going to say, I tell you the truth, one of you, the 12, is going to betray me, right? I always think they, they're probably going, Judas, don't you think? Yeah, oh yeah, no question. What do they do? Is it me? They go around that John, is it me? Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, is it me? And finally Judas to fit in, is it me? Yes. Remember all that? The ultimate counterfeit. Just because someone's in a church doesn't make them a Christian, right? So people can have a said faith rather than a real faith. Keep in mind, Christ chose Judas. He says in chapter six, have I not chosen the 12 of you? And one of you is a devil. You remember that? That must have made the other 11 go, hmm. It must have made Judas go, uh-oh, is my cover blown? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, cares about money, cares about himself. A thief. To me, if you steal from a business, that's bad. If you steal from somebody's home, that's bad. You steal from God, whew, that's the worst. Um, and yet there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about giving. Do you remember that? It talks about robbing temples, stealing religious money. And the point of that verse, I should have it on, in my notes, but I just sort of got it delivered, special delivery. The point of that that whole verse is that if you and I have money, make money, see need at a church, and don't give it, you are stealing from robbing temples, meaning you're stealing from God. Well, it's my money. Where did you get it? I earned it myself. Who gave you the abilities and the health and the job and the opportunity and the time on earth that we could go on and on? The hands, the eyes, it's all God right? So he ridicules Jesus. He ridicules Mary. Verse seven, by the way, as I told you in the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, it's the other disciples chiming in going, yeah, does seem a little ridiculous, that much money. Verse seven, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Keep it for that reason. Okay. I won't go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, nor take you all the way through the end right now, but I'll just tell you when you go home, if you pull it up on a computer and hit search and search for the word dead, die, death is all through this chapter. Um, verse one, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. What is Jesus saying here? Burial. That's a death reference, right? The disciples do not know it's less than a week away, but it's coming. Jesus knows. Now, the question is, in verse 7, that scholars have debated, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Does Mary look up and go, yeah? Or does she go, what did he say? Does she know he's going to die in six days? I don't think so. I think she loves him so much. She's just worshiping. Okay. I don't think she has that sort of inside information. I don't know how she would know. 
The last thing she wants is for her Lord to die. But he says it, and I think her action is in a way a acted out, unintended prophecy of anointing his body for burial, which is going to happen in six days, right? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. An interesting question is, do they let Mary come and anoint the body as well? I don't know, but I thought I'd throw it in. She should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So the question was, what about the poor? Verse eight, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Who's me again? He's saying, yes, there's always going to be poor people. You always have them to minister to. But this is a, to use a TV term, limited time offer. I got six more days here. I'm the son of God, the creator of the universe, the guy that gave you eyesight, hearing, and the ability to digest food and everything else you can do. I made everything you see here. It's not wrong. In appraising how much would be too much to worship, what if it was, by the way, a billion dollars? Okay, Jeff Bezos's sister is there, the richest man in the world, and she burns a million dollars on some special worship thing. Wouldn't be too much. It's the God of the universe, right? He's going to die for them. They're worried about 40 or 50 grand. In verse 8, he is not minimizing the giving of the poor or the caring for the poor. That's Old Testament and new, clear as a bell. We are to give uh, to the poor, absolutely. But he's saying, you don't always have me. And until you appraise my worth correctly, you will see this as waste, which is wrong. He basically says, leave her alone. He sticks up for her. Maybe she's crying. Maybe she doesn't care. I don't know. But he totally um, validates what she has done. Mourners would anoint the body. By the way, as I said, this would be the type, type of perfume. It's so expensive. You would use it so sparingly, almost with a little eyedropper if they uh, had one. He is claiming to have that sort of value. If he's not God, this is unbelievable arrogance. But if he is, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Um, notice that when the unsaved watch you give or worship, they ridicule it. Don't be surprised. Don't buy into it. You don't have to justify why you volunteer your time over there or give your money or you tithe or your talent you use where it's needed in a ministry or a church. It's a valuable thing. It might be the greatest thing you can do is to worship. I want you to notice she didn't sing any songs. Why do you mention that, Joe? Because we think of, um, well, at church, you see, we socialize a little, yeah, and then we're all seated, and then we worship. Oh, you sing songs. I'm not putting down music. I'm a musician, okay? That's a way, a way of worshiping God. But if you just read the words and don't think about what they mean, God doesn't care, which is what happens, isn't it, sometimes? Even for us who are up there playing the music, we're more worried, Jeff, right, Bill, about the music than we are, like, we ought to just let go and be worshiping God. But worship is much more than just singing. 
It is bowing down in our very wills, our very spirits, recognizing his worth, but it's also giving, as I said, time, talent, and treasure. Keep your finger in, whoops, the gospel of John. Go over to Romans chapter 12, and I'll show you ultimate worship. Oh, thank you, Chris. I was going to get it. Thank you. Drop my notes here. Chris, you get an A for today. Um, and I'll get you some perfume later, just a drop maybe. Romans 12, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Listen, Mary did that. Listen, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, and that means obedience, holy, and pleasing to God. Notice the next phrase, end of verse one. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of what? Worship. Worship. There's no songs there. There's no money there. It's what does God want? All of you, right? Well, I give my money, but not my attitude, not my will. I give my time, but not my money. I sing the songs. This is your reasonable act of worship. Pretty amazing verse, isn't it? All right, go back to John. Mary worships beautifully. Unbelief ridicules it. Don't, don't miss that. Um, in a sense, this is a pre-anointing, right, for his burial. Um, if you go overboard with giving... Christ will never ridicule that, ever. How many know the story of J.C. Penny, the guy that started Penny's store? Do you know about this? Anybody know? Started making crazy money and opened other stores and was making amazing money, and he was a Christian. So they started tithing 10%. And it was a lot of money. And I'm sure his accountant went, you know, 10% is a lot of money. And then he gave 20%, and then 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, listen, 90% of what he was making, because he could live on the 10 was so much. It was like, he gave 90%. Now I'm sure his accountants were going, listen, we, I know your name's Penny. That's a money thing, you know, but you don't have much sense. Sorry, that was a bad pun. <laughs> That's a bad pun. Sorry. Um, how can you outgive God? By the way, try. It's a good thing to try, right? I'm going to outgive God. You'll never do it. But you owe him your time, your talent, your treasure. You owe him everything. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, Romans 1 talks about unbelievers who suppress the truth. They hide it. They push it down in unrighteousness. That's what's going on here. Because the truth about who and what he is, there's only one person in that room that gets it besides Jesus, and it's Mary. She gets it. This guy, this guy is it. I'm giving him everything. It's not a waste to me. She wasn't sorry she did it. Um, verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. So there's two attractions there. Jesus is there, and so's that Lazarus guy. Do you see what I mean? It's becoming a celebrity. It's interesting. We talked about this when we uh, started chapter 11, the last chapter. The story of the raising of Lazarus is a major deal, but it's not in Matthew or Mark or Luke. So some people have said, why? The reason may be that verse you just read, the celebrity status, they made sure we better keep Lazarus out of the gospel because he's still alive. By the time John writes the last of the four gospels, Lazarus has died second time, right? Here we go again kind of thing. Now it's okay to mention it. That's the theory most people have about why don't Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the raising of Lazarus. Okay, so a large crowd finds out Jesus is there. They came not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. He's kind of an attraction. You could charge $11, you know, to get in, and you can take a peek at him. Signs always attract an audience. Maybe not always for the best uh, of reasons, by the way. Um, so they come to see him, and they come to see Lazarus. Reaction from chapter 11. We want to see Jesus. This guy raised the dead. Some people want to see the guy he raised, which is not the big deal. But you know, if you were there, and so would I, I'd want to get Lazarus aside and go, what did you see? What was it like dying? And where were you? Come on, spill the beans. He may have said what Paul says in um, one of the Corinthian books where he says when he goes to the third heaven, I saw things a man is not permitted to share. Let's concentrate on this world rather than that one. Um, so three model disciples, Martha served, Mary worshiped, Lazarus is a witness, right, for Jesus. We should do all three of those. Um, so there's the one reaction. Let's go check it out. Verse 10, reaction number two. So the chief priests made plans to sell all of their perfume so they could worship Jesus too. Is that what it says? Not in my Bible. So they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Is that unbelievable or what? They want to kill Jesus in chapter 11 because he raised Lazarus. The man that gave life, we need to kill that dude. Oh, he, who did he give life to? Lazarus. Let's put him on the, you know, you can hear the mafia guy. Hey, we got another guy to add to the hit list. We're going to hit Lazarus too. Get both of them uh, on the hit list. It's unbelievable that they want to kill Lazarus. Why? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If we can quiet the witness, then maybe this thing won't take off this Christianity thing. Remember, they see Jesus as a threat to their position. They see Jesus as what you and I would consider a dangerous cult-type leader, a Jim Jones, a David Koresh, a nutcase, okay, who's leading people astray. We need to reel them back in while we can. The whole world is going after this guy. So they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Did they? There's no record of it. They were happy enough killing Jesus. For, verse 11, on account of him, Lazarus, that resurrection was a big deal two miles from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus 
and believing in him because of the sign of the resurrection. Because if they were honest, they would say, who else does this? Heals lepers. Simon the leper could testify as well, right? Who else raises the dead when they've been dead four days? This is no ordinary human being. So they're believing on him, but some are the ap absolute opposite. We need to kill this guy and the witness. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. There we are. We're back. And I even remember to turn on the microphone. Very proud of myself. All right. We're back in the gospel of John chapter 12. And uh, we've come through an amazing little story there about Mary's worship and the reactions to it. John came up during the break and he's right. It was in my notes, but not didn't come out of my mouth. Um, Judas is in it for the money. By the way, a lot of scholars think this incident, that kind of money being, quote unquote, wasted on Jesus is what makes him realize there's not going to be any big payday for me here. And that's when they think he goes to the Pharisees and says, if I can deliver him, what's it worth to you? John pointed out, amazingly, what does he get? 30 pieces of silver amazing. By the way, that exact amount and what he does with it is predicted in the book of Zechariah, that the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which will be thrown in the temple. Remember, Judas throws it back. I don't want this money. And used to buy a potter's field. That's exactly what happens. What a lucky guess those three things are. Yeah, right. Okay, now we come to what's called the triumphal entry. All of the Bible is important, but when you have four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of Jesus, there are some things that are in two of those. Some are in three. The triumphal entry is one of the few things that is in all four Gospels. What's your point, Joe? That it's, this must be very important, and it is. Okay, so I want to give you the background and talk about what's going on here. Um, Verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Great anticipation. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Okay, what we just read about Mary, the dinner party was Saturday, okay? Today now is Sunday. This is what you and I would call Palm Sunday. Remember Palm Sunday? Okay, Palm Sunday is a bigger deal than you think, I'm going to guess. Um, I want you to notice in the Gospels, you've seen this over and over, and Jesus healed the blind man and told him, don't tell anybody. Remember, you see that again and again. Don't tell anybody. He doesn't want to be known primarily as a healer, a miracle worker. 
a signs guy. Don't tell anybody until this day. This is the only time Jesus goes out of his way to make a big, big entrance. You say, it doesn't look that big to me. It will. Okay. Um, by the way, John is writing the last of the four gospels. He knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke already give a bunch of these details that are left out here. Jesus prearranges the donkey. Do you remember that story? And uh, tells his disciples, I want you to go to this house, gives them directions, basically. And when you see a donkey, I want you to take the donkey. And if the owner says, well, hey, what are you doing there? Say, um, the Lord needs it. That's it. And the owner will go, oh, go ahead. What he actually takes is a female adult mother donkey and a colt baby, not baby, but younger. Are you with me? Okay. That's going to be important in a second. So the two, the, the baby will follow the mother. So there's actually two. He rides on the lower one of the two. Wanted to mention that. John doesn't mention all that prearranging. He doesn't mention that when Jesus walks in, rides into town, that the Pharisees are going to yell, stop your disciples from saying all this Hosanna stuff. We'll get to what that means in a second. John doesn't mention all of that. Jesus says to that, if, if they are silent, the very stones will cry out. Um, John doesn't mention the Lord's weeping over Jerusalem at this point when he's coming into town. Remember? Um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and those sent to them. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under its wings, but you would not. Your house is left to your desolate. That whole thing is in the other gospels. John knows that. He wants to get right to the triumphal entry. Uh, he doesn't mention the cursing of the barren fig tree. By the way, the Lord cleanses the temple again at this point, at some point. Um, driving out money changers, a second. There's two of those. John mentioned the first one. He doesn't mention the second one. Um, okay, so... You say, well, here he is. He's coming into Jerusalem. What's John going to talk about for 10 or 11 more chapters? And the answer is chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters, are nothing, pretty much nothing but Jesus' private briefing for his apostles, teaching them. Yes, the, the betrayal of Judas is in there, but mostly it's, if you have a red letter Bible, it's almost all red letter. Uh, that portion. So that's what we will get to. Okay. So they've come to the festival. How many people are there, Joe? I don't know, but it's a lot. One census, Josephus, the Roman Jewish, but Roman historian writes about, they actually counted the number of lambs that were sacrificed on one Passover around this time. We don't know exactly when. Okay. And the number was 255,000 lambs, a quarter of a million lambs. You say, okay, what's the significance of that? It would be one lamb per family. So if the family is five people, three kids and two uh, adults, that one lamb was for five people. But sometimes the grandparents were there and the parents, and it could be for 10 or 12 people. 
So the number of people there could be as few as a million and as many as two and a half million or even more. They are in the other gospels ahead of Jesus and behind him. It's like a parade. In a way, it's like a ticker tape parade, but humble God style ticker tape parade. Um, okay, so that's why they're there for the, for the Passover. You say, wait a minute, Passover starts Thursday night. Why are they there this, this early? The rule was the head of each family had to sacrifice a lamb as uh, the sacrifice for that family's sins committed since the last Passover when another lamb was sacrificed. So many of these people would be bringing a lamb with them. Um, let's see, what was my point in that? I can't even remember. Um, so there's all kinds of lambs as well as people. It's a very, very busy um, scene. Um, but the rule was in the Old Testament, you don't just get a lamb and give it to the priest, cut the throat. The lamb had to live at your house for at least three days. Why is that? So that it would almost be kind of like a pet. You gotta get a little attached to the lamb. He's been with us at least three days and Oh, it makes it even harder. Now the children are going to freak out. We're going to, what are you going to do with them? Uh, nothing, honey. They're going to slit his throat to show you how bad the sins of the world are. But the, the lamb of God is in that procession, walking, surrounded by lambs, right? This is the last legit Passover because he is the Passover lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay. They took, verse 13, so they hear he's coming on his way. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, or even the king of Israel. Okay, palm branches, date palms in that part of the world were pre prevalent in that era. Um, they were used whenever there was a celebration, these palms um, they were used on coins even. Um, there were six psalms called the Hallel Psalms. Have you ever said hallelujah? Hallelujah basically means praise God. Hallel means praise. Hallel Psalms were all 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118. Those were the Hallel Psalms. Those are the ones that people would recite. The choir would sing them in the temple. What's your point, Joe? They're quoting the Hallel Psalms, applying them to him, Jesus, who's riding in on a donkey. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to the donkey in a second uh, or go forward to the donkey. So they're waving palm branches and they go out to meet him. There's a huge crowd on either side of the street. Here he comes. And they're shouting, Hosanna, which means literally save now. Save us now. Bring salvation now. Any of those, okay? It's in the Psalms. We won't read 113 to 118. We'd be here all night, but that's what the Psalms say. And right after Hosanna, the next phrase is, blessed is, and they're pointing to him, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jews understood it as the person that brings salvation is the Messiah. They're calling him the Messiah. He is not rebuking them. No, 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 not me. 
he's basically presenting himself as the Messiah. I'll get to why, how I know that in a second. Blessed is he who comes in the name or the power of the Lord. Then they say, even the king of Israel. Now, here's what's weird. Hosanna, quoting the Hallel Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallel Psalms. Blessed is the king of Israel, not in the Hallel Psalms. That's their addition. They see the Messiah the way I've told you this before. There's two different groups of scriptures that describe the Messiah. Group number one is the one they're thinking of, a political king, a military leader who will free and save the Jews from the yoke of the Romans that has oppressed them and been a hard fist in their face. That's what they're expecting. The Messiah is a descendant of King David. He's the son of David. He will reign forever on the throne of David. That's what they want, the conquering Messiah. You say, well, who can blame him? I'm with you. But there's a whole other set of scriptures, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that speak about a suffering servant whose hands and feet are pierced, who dies for the sins of the world as a sacrifice. When we get to this crucifixion, we're going to look at Isaiah 53. I just want you to know there's two scriptures. Well, which is it for the Messiah? You can't have a Messiah that dies and one that reigns forever. He either reigns forever or he dies. And the answer is it's both. The first coming of Christ, he's the suffering servant, and he's going to come very humbly and die for the sins of the world. The second coming, I want you to know he rides on a white horse, a war horse, to conquer and take over and reward righteousness and punish evil, all of the above. But this is the first coming. So they're yelling, save now, save now to him. Um, so they're calling him the Messiah, but they're even calling him the King Messiah. Um, so that's what they're expecting. This is more, we all think of Palm Sunday as what a spiritual holiday it was. Not so much for the Jews. It's more a political rally. Here comes our candidate, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, whoever you want. Um, we're not going to get into those two names. But anyway, uh, it's a political rally. For that reason, this same crowd who is mostly yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, the, the king of Israel. About five days later, what are they going to be yelling, most of them? Crucify him. Kill him. He's not what we want. He's all beaten up. He's all bloody. Nah, this isn't the guy. Kill him. Okay. Um, let's see. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Verse 14. As it is written, I want to stop there. Okay, keep your finger here. I want you to go to Zechariah. You say, I don't know where that is. Take a left. From John, go through the whole New Testament all the way to Matthew. Keep going slowly. You come to that first that last book of the Old Testament, the one in Italian, Malachi, do you see it there? Actually, it's Malachi, it's a joke. Okay, and just before that, a couple before that, I think it is, or one before that, is Zechariah. Do you see Zechariah yet? Go to chapter 9 of Zechariah. This is written, listen, hundreds of years before Jesus marches in, uh, rides in on that donkey. Okay, you got the picture? Hundreds of years before Zechariah writes Zechariah. Chapter 9, look at verse 9. 
This is a prophecy of the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is a term for the people of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly. He's saying this is reason for a huge celebration. Why, Zechariah? Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And they are, aren't they? Save now. See your what? King comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Save now, salvation now. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Predicted in the Old Testament. Why did Jesus arrange for the donkey? Why does he pick this particular day? Well, the day thing is going to take a little explaining, but I'm going to show you in a second that this prophecy is fulfilled on Palm Sunday to the day it was predicted in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. To the day. It had to happen that day, not the day before, not the day after, that day, okay? Now, Romans, when they had a military parade like this after a victory, they, the Romans who are there, surely, are laughing at this little parade, okay? It's not little, but it's a guy riding a donkey, okay? You ever ridden on a horse? You get on a horse or uh, a, a, an animal that side, you're like, wow, I am high up here. If I fall, I'm going to get hurt. A donkey is a much lower, humble, kind of considered dumb, not that impressive looking. He was riding an impressive donkey. What? What is that? Okay, even worse. Okay, please don't take offense at this, anybody. He's low riding. Do you know what a low rider is from the 70s, 60s? How high off the ground? I think he's as high as I am on this stool. Not very high off the ground. I can touch my foot to the floor here. He's on, remember, a young donkey. The mother would be a little bigger. He could have ridden that one. No, he's just riding in on a humble, slow animal. Why? Because riding in on a donkey says peace. He comes in peace. That's the first time he comes to the earth he comes in peace. He is announcing, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. Go look up Zechariah 9.9 on the donkey. Here I come. Um, the Romans would think this is ridiculous. They were used to white horses, war horses that would come in, chariots, the whole bit. But this is his triumphal entry. By the way, it's short-lived, as I said. If you know anything about the fickle nature of crowds, they can love you one minute and boo you the next. And they're going to do that before the week is up. Um, a donkey would be the animal of a man of peace, a priest, a merchant. Uh, it's not a war horse. The second time he comes on a war horse. By the way, um, keep your finger there. Go to Revelation, last book of the Bible chapter seven. I want to just show you something um, I found this week that's kind of interesting. Revelation seven. Uh, if you can't find it, that's okay, but it's pretty easy to find. Revelation seven and coincidentally verse nine. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation 
tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb, they were wearing white robes and they were holding what? Palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, verse 10, salvation, there it is again, salvation saved now. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb, who they now know who the lamb is, don't they? Okay, go back to John. I just wanted to show you palm branches show up again at the end. Um, let's see, how far have we come here? We've got the donkey. He's riding in on a donkey. Uh, John doesn't mention this, but people are taking off their robes and laying them on the road. Remember that? And the palm branches making a road for him where they're receiving their Messiah. Very short-lived, as I mentioned. Um, we talked about that. I'm just looking at notes here. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a young donkey. Yeah, we mentioned that. So verse 16 is such a great verse. By the way, 15, don't be afraid. The king's coming humbly seating, seated on a donkey's colt. Listen, if you, if you wonder about the humility of the Lord Jesus, look at his whole life. He says he came to serve, not to be served, give his life as a ransom for many. How is he born? In a palace? There's no room at the inn. The God of the universe comes in human bodily baby form, and there's, sorry, no vacancy for you, right? He's out with the animals. It's this whole life is so beautiful. Such a picture of humility. Um, verse 16. I love verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written, Old Testament, about him and that these things had been done to him all in the plan of God. By the way, parenthetically, back to the donkey being arranged. Some people think that a week before, three days before, Jesus had talked to Jesse here, who owns some donkeys, and said, my guys are going to come by your place and pick up a donkey um, on Sunday, uh, first day of the week. Um, is it okay if we use them for a little while? Sure, Lord. Yeah, he's a disciple. He, Jesus secretly prearranged it. It's possible. It wouldn't surprise me if Jesse, the owner of the donkey, had no idea this was going to happen, and God arranged it without anybody knowing, and the disciples go there and start to untie it, and Jesse says, what are you doing with the donkey? And they say, the Lord needs it, and God speaks to Jesse and goes, let him have it. Okay, go ahead. I don't know which it is. It doesn't say. Um, but clearly, Jesus knows I'm riding in Jerusalem. I need a donkey. Um, that's his limo, if you will. But that verse 16, at first, his disciples does not understand all this. They didn't understand a lot, right? Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And, and, and the, I think it's Matthew. And Jesus says that. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, that will never happen. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. It's God's will. Get out of the way. Remember, they don't want him to die. He's got to die. It's the reason he came. That's going to come up shortly as time permits. Um, and you know, you're in verse 16 too. At first, all of us didn't understand all of this, right? We're, if we did, we wouldn't be here tonight on Zoom or in person. We're all, including me, still growing. I'm still going, oh, wow. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him, the fulfilled prophecy. Do you remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch after the resurrection is reading Isaiah out loud and a couple of disciples come up and they hear and they go, do you understand what you're reading? And they say, he says, not really. And they start explaining. Do you remember that? Um, verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, this is a group of people that were there at that, their eyewitnesses and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. They're almost going through the crowd going, by the way, do you know what this dude did? No, what? He raised Lazarus, a dead man. We saw it. We know he was dead. We were at the funeral for the whole week. He shows up. He says, Lazarus, come out. And there he came, wrapped in so they're spreading the word. They're witnessing, if you will. And they continued to spread the word. And you're in verse 17. You're supposed to be doing that as well, spreading the word. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. The word has spread, okay? There's a, in 21st century vernacular, there's a buzz about Jesus. Everybody's talking about him, Okay. The Pharisees just hate that, by the way. So they had heard he performed the sign. They go out to meet him. So, verse 19, the Pharisees said to another, you know, we should probably believe in him too and get this salvation. He's clearly the king and the Messiah. He's riding on a donkey. He did all the miracles. Is that what it says? See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, that's a hyperbole right? People in China aren't praising him at that moment, but it's a weird sort of backward prophecy because it's going to go to the whole world. And there are Christians in every nation in the world now from this little thing in Israel. But what they're basically saying is we're losing the battle. Look at the crowd he's drawing. We're over here doing our prayers to look holy and nobody's even looking at us. They're watching the guy that did the miracles. See how the whole world has gone after him. Now, verse 20, this little incident that's coming up here is, oh, I know what I forgot to tell you about. Uh, the incident that's coming up, let me finish my sentence, um, is a little bit of a weird one. But in the remaining time, we may not get to it because I got to go back to the timing and show you why. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. So Old Testament, if you go to Isaiah, which is about the middle, or Psalms, you just start taking a right from there. Um, and you'll come to Daniel chapter 9. After Ezekiel, even the teacher can't find it right now. Um, Daniel 9 is a prophecy about the history of the Jewish people going forward from that time. Uh, okay, there we are. Um, so the math is a little hard to do quickly but I'm going to try to do it and show you. How many know about Daniel 9 and the math I'm about to say? Does anybody know about this already? Kind of? Okay. I'll try to make it clear. I've done this before, and I thought I made it clear and had people come up and go, you know, I, I didn't understand anything you said. So uh, obviously you need a better teacher in this class. Okay. So why do you say, Joe, that this Palm Sunday is the day? To the day as predicted. I'll show you. Go to Daniel 9, um, verse 
20. He's praying, he's confessing his sins. And while he's in prayer, Gabriel, an angel, an archangel, shows up. Okay? He instructed me, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. Um, okay, let's pick it up in verse 24. Before we do one last thing, if I say, oh, there's, there's Joe Camarena. I haven't seen him for three decades. If I say that, would any of you wonder, like, how long has it been? We, we talk in decades, don't we? Decade, what would mean you haven't seen him for 30 years. The Jews think in terms of seven years. So forget decades, 10 years, think seven-year periods. Got it? So one seven would be seven years. Got the picture? Watch. Verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, that's the Jews, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem. What's going to happen in those 77s? By the way, 70 times 7 is 490 years. You with me? 70 periods of seven years. What's going to happen? It's astounding. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for, pay for on the cross, wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow. Okay, you have my attention now, Gabriel. 490 years, I got it. Know and understand this. Now he's going to give you, if I said 490 years, you'd go, well, where do I put this in the timeline to figure out where it happens? Now he's going to give you the starting point. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that was 445 BC, okay? Nehemiah chapter 2. Historians have pinpointed not only the 445 BC, but even March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes Longimanus gave the order, okay, you Jews, you can rebuild your city, rebuild your temple now. That's when God went. Remember the beginning of 60 Minutes, the TV show? That's when the clock started. Got that? 445 BC, March 19th, uh, 14th, sorry. Okay, so let's go back to the text. Are you still with me? Say amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, are you awake? Some of you are. Okay. Um, okay, from that point, when that order is given, um, from the issue to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Anointed one is the Messiah. That's what we're looking for. Got it? There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, wait a minute. I thought there was 70. He's saying there's a division. Seven and 62 is 69. 69 times seven is 483 years. How many are confused already? Just me? Okay. 483 years from 445 BC, okay, counting forward will be the exact day Messiah shows up. What else do you need to know? The Jews thought in terms of years of 360, not 365, days. They accounted for leap years. Um, Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of Scotland Yard, spent years with history and calculators and of that time. This is about 120 years ago, figuring this out, okay? 360-day years. Accounting for the fact that from 1 BC to 1 AD, there is no year zero. 
Don't forget. Okay. I bore you with these details. So what did they find out, Joe? April 6th, 32 AD is what the numbers come out to. Comes out to 173,880 days. That's 483 times 360. Okay. When you calculate it out, it comes to spring and it's a uh, it's Good Friday, um, 32 AD. There are a few scholars that have redone the math and come out with 30 AD. Um, also, spring Passover, okay? The week leading up to Passover. To the day, God says, this is when your Messiah is going to show up. Um, very quickly, go to Luke um, Oh, gosh, I, I have to tell you, what about the other seven? Remember, that's 69 seven. What, I thought there were 70. The other seven is the seven-year tribulation at the end of the world. Okay? There's a break. Uh, we won't go. We're not studying Daniel now. We already did that. Go quickly to the Gospel of Luke. I just want to show you one quick thing why I'm not making all this up. I mean, I make up a lot of it, but not all of it. Luke, just kidding. Luke 19.41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, I want you to notice he expected them to know the day, like I just explained to you. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. He expected them to know this is the day. Donkey ready? Yes. Passover, millions of people? Yes. He expected them to know. In the same way, there is a day, and I don't know when it is, when he'll come back, right? I don't know when it is, neither do you. No man knows the day or the hour, but trust me on this, it's going to be exactly when it's supposed to, and it's sooner, it's closer than it's ever been, right? Um, okay, we still have a few minutes. Um, stay awake, we're almost done. Um, okay. Verse 20. Do we want to go there now? I think we beat that dead horse. Yes. Um, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who had, uh, who went up to Jerusalem to worship at the festival. Greeks is a term in the Bible used for non-Jews. It means Gentiles. These people are probably actual Greeks from Greece. Okay. These are not Jews. Don't miss the Jewishness of everything we've said so far. This is Passover, donkey, Zechariah. Uh, everything's Jewish about this, the sacrifice of lambs. What are Greeks doing here? Okay, two possibilities. The likely one is they are converts to Judaism who've come to worship the true God. Such a thing existed. They were called proselytes, converts who were Greek, not Jewish by uh, nationality. Other possibility, they're not there for Passover. They're businessmen from Greece, and they go, he raised what? A guy from the dead? We'd like an interview with him. Okay. There were some Greeks there um, who went up to worship at the festival. They're, they're there to worship, so they're clearly converts. Verse 21, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. That happens to be a very, an area concentrated with Gentiles and Greeks. And Philip is a Greek name. They came to Philip, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, sir. They said, we would like to see Jesus. They're asking for an interview. 
Okay, they want to be able to talk to him. How many of them are there? We don't know. We may have to talk about this next week because we're running out of time. Um, and this is a very confusing thing if you don't take it apart. I'll just read it and we'll talk about it next week. Um, so they want to see Jesus. Philip is a little hesitant. Verse 22, he goes and tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, notice the death, death, death again, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now he's going to talk about his death. What's missing? What happened to the Greeks? Did he snub them? Does he only answer his disciples? To find the answer, you'll have to come back next Tuesday night. <laughs> Let's close with prayer and blow out of here, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this time. Uh, what a beautiful picture of loving worship, God. More than singing songs, more than giving money, time, talent, treasure, giving ourselves. Mary gave so selflessly, not thinking of what people would think. She didn't care. She gave extravagantly, God. And your son, Jesus Christ, is so worth it, worth infinitely more. May we bow in that kind of submission, in that kind of humility, and give you our time and our talent and our treasure, and in your kingdom do that, since you freely has, have given to us, God. Thank you for this triumphal entry. At least I am blown away by the timing down to the day. We look forward to that next time when he appears in person on planet Earth. To tell you the truth, God, we can't wait for that. May it come tonight. Um, but in the meantime, we've got work to do. We've got witnessing to do, serving to do like Martha, witnessing like Lazarus, worshiping like Mary. May we do it with all our heart, God. Thank you for this time in your word. We love you. And we pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Those of you on Zoom and those of you here, um, God bless you. And we'll see you soon.